Salesflare and this is Founder Coffee. Every few weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk getting to know the person behind the company. For this 42nd episode I talked to Rand Fishkin, formerly co-founder and CEO of Malls and now co-founder and CEO of SparkToro, a new solution and data provider for audience intelligence. Rand started off leading an SEO agency and blogging about the topic and then started Moz 13 years ago as one of the first solutions for SEO research. A few years ago, he left Moz and started SparkToro, continuing to work on his love for making big data and complex problems easy. We talk about SaaS versus services, the innovative business model behind SparkToro, how to stay authentic in marketing, how Rand organizes marketing in his new company, and why not to release any MVP, but take it slowly. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hey guys, uh, hey SaaS Growth X. Uh, we're live here with Rand Fishkin. Um, for those of you who don't know Rand, uh, Rand uh, founded Malls in the past. Uh, I think that must have been about, how long ago was that, Rand? Um, yeah, 2003. 2003, that's uh, 17 years ago. Uh, it's, it's quite a while. Uh, and recently, I, I think uh, about two years ago or so, you must have launched SparkToro uh, after leaving Moz. Uh, and I th- when did you launch it exactly? Was that last month or? Yeah, uh, April. So not quite two months ago. Yeah, I, I followed some of that, but I haven't been able to, to test it myself so far, I must say. Uh, how is the how's the launch going so far? Um, you know, it's a pretty tough time to try and pull off a launch, um, but uh, it's going it's going okay. I would say not uh, not fantastic, but not terrible. Yeah, can can you tell uh, some of the viewers and listeners maybe uh, what SparkDoor is about um, so that they can get an idea of that because it's still a pretty young company. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so SparkToro is an, an audience intelligence and a market research tool. It's designed to help marketers and product people and entrepreneurs and founders uh, better understand the audiences that they want to reach and where they can reach them online, right? So if you are, you know, if you and I are building a product and mm-hmm. uh, we want to target chemical engineers in the UK or interior designers in California or, um, yeah, project managers in uh, the tech field or uh, any, any describable audience. Uh, one of the key questions that we always have to answer is, you know, where can we reach them? What are the websites mm-hmm. they visit? What are the social accounts that they follow? What are the YouTube channels that they subscribe to? What are the podcasts they listen to? Exactly. That's really hard information to get right now. Most people do it through surveys and interviews and Googling around and it's pretty, um, pretty poor quality and mm-hmm. pretty non- uh, statistically sound. And so SparkToro solves that problem by uh, crawling tens of millions of social accounts, I, I guess billions of social accounts and data points, and then uh, aggregating all that stuff together uh, into these 75-ish million profiles that you can search across and say, show me what interior designers in California listen to, watch, read, follow, subscribe to. Yeah, cool. Actually, I when I think of it, um, I, in my previous job, I, I used to um, service pharma companies mostly, life sciences companies. And what we would do is we would do these uh, expensive surveys, <laughs> I must say, uh, in which we uh, would um, set up a survey towards doctors to ask uh, which channels they get most impacted by, uh, what kind of, for instance, if it's, if it's magazines, what kind of magazines they read, all these kind of things to then map out all the channels through which a doctor is um, influenced uh, and then make sure that pharma companies can put their money in the right places. So that's, that's really what you do, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We're trying, you know, obviously surveys and interviews have lots of other purposes, but Mm -hmm. we don't think they're very effective for finding out where you can reach your target audience, right? With with your marketing. And if you, if you don't want to just throw money at Google and Facebook uh, or, or Amazon, if you're in e-commerce and sort of pay these incredibly inflated prices, try and compete against thousands of other competitors. If you want to go direct, if you want to do organic marketing, co-marketing, mm-hmm. 
you know, pitches of all kinds, uh, there is tremendous opportunity to have a competitive advantage in, in the marketing world if you know which sources reach your audience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, when I think of it, I'm, I'm certainly going to have a look at it uh, for Salesforce as well uh, to see how I can get to yeah. more people. We're, uh, unf- the, the, the bad news is that SparkToro is uh, primarily, somewhere between primarily and exclusively English language centric. Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking at UK, Canada, Australia, United States, mm-hmm. some South Africa, New Zealand, um, it works pretty well. Mm-hmm. If you're looking outside those places, not as much. No, right now our main markets are English spoken, so that sounds good. What I actually find interesting is that um, both at Moss and Sparkdoor, you're sort of doing a similar way. Uh, you're like indexing traffic drivers of the web, you could say. Yeah. Uh, earlier from a search standpoint and now more from a social standpoint. Uh, what is it exactly that attracts you uh, towards these type of businesses? Yeah, I like um, I like making big data and complex problems easy, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a valuable thing to do. I have fun doing it. I enjoy being able to um, aggregate these these huge amounts of um, disparate information and and distill it down to something useful and usable. I think mm-hmm. that just uh, it speaks to me for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. And what is exactly the the backstory there for starting SparkToro? Um, not, not like the, the fluffy version of, uh, of uh, uh, I, I always wanted, whatever. Uh, but like really concretely, when, when did the first Spark for uh, SparkToro, uh, I don't know, was not intended here, Spark for SparkToro, uh, exactly happen? And uh, how, how did that start to grow on you? Yeah. Uh, so the first spark was, or the catalyst was certainly a few years ago, I was on the board of a company called Haiku Deck here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, we were consistently struggling with marketing channels and tactics, right? Essentially on occasion, we would stumble into, you know, the CEO, the team would stumble into uh, one marketing channel that worked really well for them, right? Like a, a, a group for whatever, professional um, uh, life coaches, which was like a big target audience for them. And, you know, they'd, they'd have a great month or even a great quarter. And then it would be mm-hmm. this, this constant search for like, oh, can we find another one? Where, where can we, fig- how do we figure out which, whatever, conferences and events, uh, YouTube channels, uh, podcasts were good for them. A lot of websites, sponsorship stuff was good for them. Co-marketing stuff was good for them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a social, you know, the right social account amplifying would be good for them. But figuring those out uh, was just, you know, like pulling teeth. And um, and so I remember having a conversation with Adam, the CEO, and saying like, gosh, you know, I think I think this data is possible to get if we could just crawl it. And we had this conversation about like, wait, are we really going to build a web crawler and a social media crawler just to be able to extract the information for which channels we can go after? Like that'll be, you know, a year of work to build this thing. And it never, it never got made, but it definitely sparked the idea in my head that it could be done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by trying to uh, quantify social influence and some companies have tried to do it in the past, like clouds or, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are sort of solving a different problem. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, where they're, you know, cloud and, um, who's it, uh, folks like brand watch and, um, people in those spaces, right. Where they're looking at sort of what are social media conversations that are happening or how, you know, how many followers does this person have versus that person on these, on these different accounts, right? And uh, SparkToro is really, it's very simple, right? And, mm-hmm. and straightforward, it's just challenging to get, which is essentially, rather than saying, you know, oh, does this source have lots of followers, right? Does it have lots of impact? You kind of don't care about that. Like when you're a brand, what you care about is, does it have impact with my audience, the people I want to reach? 
right? So you don't, you don't care if it has a million influencer marketing is so terrible at this, right? Cause influencer marketing mm-hmm. is all like, Oh, let's find a person with, you know, whatever a hundred thousand or a million, you know, Instagram followers, and we'll pay them $500 to pose half naked with our product. Right. And it, it, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Does that, does that actually uh, move the needle for some consumer companies? Sometimes it does fine, but in, in a lot of cases, right, if you're targeting a more specific audience, that is just a, a terrible solution, right? What you want to know is not who has a million followers. It's who do the 10,000 people that I want to reach follow and pay attention to most. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the real question you want to answer. And so what you're looking for is I want to be able to search for my audience in ways like words and phrases in their bio or their profile, things that they talk about online, sources they already follow, hashtags they use, websites they visit, right? Those types of searches, and then see a list of the people and publications and accounts that they, and podcasts that they follow in order, right? So 18% of interior designers in Los Angeles follow or listen to this publication. Yeah. Boom. Now I can do good targeting. I know that I can put three times the budget to this one that I can put to the one that says 6%. Yeah. And how does that system exactly work? Like it does it. So you were, you were saying some of the things, if I remember well, it's uh, hashtags they use. Uh, you said things they have in their bio, but you also said sites they visit. Uh, uh, so implied visit, right? So by crawling, mm-hmm. Uh, social accounts and about pages. We just look at what they link to and engage with and Mm -hmm. make the assumption, fingers crossed, right? Hopefully most of the time, if you post something in Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or Reddit or YouTube, right? If you post a link, chances are good. You probably visited that. Yeah. So that's, it's an implied visit, right? We don't actually have a monitoring system, you know, installed on anyone's computer. This, mm-hmm. is, this is implied data from uh, accounts, public, social, and web accounts. So do you crawl the whole history that every, uh, so the whole like Twitter trend forever that every person had or? Uh, no, not entirely. It, uh, we crawl a, um, a pretty significant portion of Twitter. Twitter's um, where we get a lot of mm-hmm. uh, data, but we, you know, we basically are crawling a sample of the last 120 days of what's been shared, mm. engaged with, linked to, followed, talked about on yeah, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Quora, I think is one of our network. Oh, Medium, um, yeah, website about pages. So we've got about 10 social networks and then, and then websites. Yeah, uh, how does the data coming from Twitter compare to the data from from many of these others, like I, I imagine that for, for Twitter, it's way better than for, for instance, like crawling Instagram or... Uh, no, Instagram, oh, Instagram. And, Instagram yeah, yeah. and Twitter no. yeah. are, are both pretty good. Yeah, yeah Instagram yeah, yeah, yeah. and Twitter are both pretty good. Facebook is challenging Facebook. because a lot of the information is private. Mm-hmm. Um, Reddit is challenging because many folks don't connect, publicly connect their Reddit account to any other social account. So Reddit's sort of a very anonymous uh, network medium is pretty good when we can get it. You know, if someone has mm-hmm. a medium account that, that does work pretty well, but it's, it's a small portion. Uh, YouTube is actually pretty darn good, right? Cause mm-hmm. you visit someone's YouTube page. It'll show what they're, if it's public, right. It, it'll show what they're subscribed to and their comments and that kind of stuff. You can see channels, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the, every network has its challenges. Every network has its opportunities. You know, LinkedIn has nice data about, um, uh, job title and description, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm, you must be sitting in a, on an enormous amount of data by now already. Uh, like uh, you're probably able to see trends in there, like related to the current situation uh, and the p- pandemic. Are there, are there any trends you're seeing in the, the data you're crawling about, for instance, how marketing works? Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, I think with regard to the pandemic, there's folks who are doing uh, some, I would say, more relevant and better stuff on on that data extraction front. I've been really impressed with um, HubSpot's COVID-19, 
you know, analysis of sort of how email, how effective are B2B emails, what are open rates, what are sales lead rates, mm-hmm. what are close rates like. Um, I really liked what SimilarWeb's doing on, in terms of traffic data. Stuff that we see is more like um, more people following COVID-related accounts, following, you know, uh, scientists and health organizations. We see people uh, tweeting about things, uh, sharing, you know, publishing data on LinkedIn, publishing on their their public social profiles, right? So there's more interaction around that stuff. I think there's more activity in general. But Mm -hmm. I would say I actually, I think the last month or so, most of the um, most of that activity is not pandemic related. It is related to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. that's certainly, you know, that's an area where we can see some really interesting data. The, uh, y- yesterday, in fact, I, I saw an account. Um, this is a, a New York uh, police sergeants um, uh, union, right? So, <laughs> so an organization, it's an official account. And, uh, and I plugged in uh, that account to SparkToro to take a look at, they had, they had amplified a video um, from a couple weeks ago saying that it had been from the night before to try and, I don't know, stir up pro-police, anti-Black sentiment mm-hmm. um, among, their, among their followers. And, and it was very manipulative, you know, ob- an obvious lie uh, really problematic, really troubling, right? Because this is an official account for a police union. I plugged in their account, and sure enough, if you look at their the data about their followers, right, the people who follow this account, they are, you know, we're white supremacists, uh, believers in. I don't know if this has made its way to Belgium. Do you know what QAnon is? QAnon? No, I don't know. So there's like a a substantive subset of conservatives in the United States who believe that uh, Hillary Clinton is allied with like underground lizard people in a pizza dungeon. (laughs) Okay. I know you're laughing. It's a real thing. Like there are a lot of people who believe that, that there's this like numerology thing and, and Trump is somehow going to save the world from these lizard people. And um, it's pretty weird. There's a lot of, uh, pedophilia uh, um, accusations. It's very odd, very hard. Oh, yeah. to oh I, I, I saw some of that part. It's an old Jeffrey Epstein thing yeah. with the pedophilia. Yeah. Yeah. I think once that came out, right, that, that the Jeffrey Epstein thing started getting associated with this, the, the, the rest of the QAnon movement. But it's a very broad, strange conspiracy theory um, about ah. how the world is controlled and the deep state and all these kinds of things. Anyway. Uh, that all all of those things, uh, you know, there was a bunch of um, uh, what we call it, like words and phrases people used to describe themselves, acronyms they were sharing, hashtags they were using, uh, and I, I didn't even know what they were. So I had to I had to Google them to look them up to figure out, like, oh, okay, a bunch of these folks think that the Black Lives Matter movement is connected to QAnon, and whoa, right? It, so yeah. you, you can kind of see the underpinnings of like an audience. And this is around a political topic, obviously, but you can mm-hmm. do this, you know, the, what's what's very useful for, for marketers outside of the political spectrum um, is, is things like being able to understand the words and phrases that your audience uses, right? If you don't mm-hmm. understand their acronyms, you don't know the words that they're using, you don't understand how they're talking about things and what they're paying attention to, you can be part of that conversation and listen before you go try and amplify your messages, right? So it, it, is, it is helpful not just for discovering sources, but also for gaining a deep understanding of your potential buyers. Yeah, so if you use your software in a certain way, you can also d- discover these kind of messages or... Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, we've done, we've done a number of analyses that one of the most popular things that people did, we have a, we have a tool that analyzes uh, fake followers. Right mm-hmm. to to look at um, you know what percentage of a of a person's social account we, we uh, the free tool is just for Twitter, but um, what percentage of you know my followers are uh, not active right essentially they're they're bot accounts they're propaganda accounts they are um, uh, uh, non active accounts they're spam. And so we have this whole analysis that we run through and, and almost everyone who uses the tool does two things, right? They check their own account, 
<laughs> and then they check Donald Trump's account. Yeah. Right? Same, like same thing every, every time. Um, and, and yeah, about 70% of Donald Trump's followers on Twitter are not, uh, I, somewhere between not real and not active accounts, right? They're spam, they're bots, they're propaganda, uh, or they're just not active, right? They signed up at some point in Twitter in the past, but they, they haven't logged in in 100 plus days. Yeah. And all these uh, these likes that he gets on every tweet that he sends out, are those real or bot uh, likes? Uh, a, a combination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a combination. Yeah, I, I'm always surprised, but uh, he, he says something really uh, uh, surprising. And then uh, <laughs> he gets like a ton of likes. Uh, it's a special world. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty problematic. I, I think the you know the good news is Twitter is unlike Facebook, right? Willing to take some steps to uh, limit you know uh, limit the visibility of his hate and violence inciting um, tweets. Mm-hmm. Which is, Maybe I think you know they've said publicly, right, that if if he were a private citizen and not the president, they would have banned his account, right? Because it's yeah. um, violating their terms of service, you know, by by inciting hate speech and and um, uh, inciting violence. And yeah, that's pretty that's pretty concerning, right? <laughs> it's yeah. Behavior we've never seen from a from a president before. True. Uh, about all this, like um, I, I see that you're often. Um, tweeting about things like uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and talking openly about politics. And uh, while a lot of people would advise against doing that uh, in the context of business, uh, how do you exactly look at that? Yeah, so my, um, I, I mean, I have two beliefs. One, I think it is a moral and ethical imperative for a thinking, caring human being to um, put their beliefs about the world that they want to see and and the world that they want to live in uh, above their desire for additional financial gains, um, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty. Uh, I, I have I have been unimpressed, somewhere between unimpressed and disgusted by folks who, you know, are sort of willing to say, well, you know. Privately, yeah, I support that, and and I think police violence is bad. But I, I, I'm not going to say anything about it publicly because I don't want to piss off potential customers, right? Like I, you know, I, I maybe I may, maybe I have a lot of money and I'm a business owner, but I want more money more than I want to, you know, <laughs> t- take a stand on an issue. That yeah, that's pretty gross, right? That's that's the wrong side of history. Um, that is. Uh, really disappointing, and so I, yeah, I'm I'm not willing uh, to be to be in that world, um, and mm-hmm. I I don't have that much interest in money that I'm you know that I'm willing to make that that kind of sacrifice. Um, and also, uh, I you know as a as a marketer, one of the things that I think um, has has always been true is that building a um, building a community around yourself that uh, supports and uh, believes in what you're doing for more than just what your business or product provides is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, uh, they have many, many faults, right? But, but Nike in the United States supported Colin Kaepernick, uh, the, the, the American football players um, protests against police violence and his, um, you know, kneeling during the national anthem, they they were they were willing to take his side and be supportive and amplify his message in their branding publicly, despite being you know a company that is um, bought by many swaths of uh, of the American public and and potentially right. I think maybe in small ways, maybe even in in larger ways, uh, helped to make that conversation more accessible and palatable to a, lo- a, w- a much wider swath of American citizens. I think that, um, yeah, Nike is imperfect in many ways. Uh, I have many complaints about things that they've done in other sectors, but I think that is 
somewhere where you could you could point and say, hey, that that's a good thing, right? Ben and Jerry's ice cream has taken um, a, a shockingly um, wonderful stand on a whole bunch of these issues. You know, you can see mm-hmm. uh, just this past week, right? NASCAR stepping up and saying we're banning the Confederate flag from our event. You know, we are not going to have this representation of um, of hatred and anti-blackness at 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 our public uh, races anymore. And yeah, I mean that these are you know these are things that I think um, people in leadership roles uh, should should contend with, should be forced to contend with, and and they have the option to make the right decision. Um, I, I hope that more people do. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that you're a big uh, proponent of more authentic and personal marketing. I hate yeah. to call it personal branding because that just uh, makes it uh, salesy again. Uh, it seems I mean, to... one of the one of the things that's really interesting. I don't I don't know if you've um, experienced this or how much you've been uh, talking about this stuff on your on your public social feed or even how much it's made its way to, to Belgium, but. Um, you know, me, I have uh, had, uh, I have lost the most um, social followers uh, in in the last um, four weeks that, you know, that, that I've ever had in my career, right? Basically, <laughs> people, people stop following me on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Um, <clears throat> and, well, I mean, that, that, that sucks, but also... I probably, I'm probably better, you know, better off um, reaching the people that, that uh, are um, right types of, uh, you know, share, share the same vision for the world that I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's uh, completely switch topics now. Uh, um, uh, something extremely different. Uh, it's about SaaS versus services. Oh yeah. Uh, I read your book, uh, Lost and Founder. I, I, I got it here uh, just to show uh, a while back uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, thanks for, for writing it. Uh, and I remember that in there you had a very interesting view on, on SaaS versus um, service slash agency businesses. Um, in the group also that we're broadcasting this is this in, uh, there's a lot of SaaS businesses, but there's also agencies in there, yeah. uh, offering services, SaaS businesses. Um, and, uh, in both cases we're sort of, uh, as a SaaS businesses, SaaS business, people tell us don't offer services and as a, as a service business, uh, you might want to go into SaaS business, but then on the other hand, then it sort of feels like you should cancel your service business. Um, you gave in the book some some differences between the two and why you should choose for the one and the other and that they're not mutually exclusive, perhaps. Can you uh, shed some more light on that, on, on like their, summarize your thoughts on, on the difference? Sure. Uh, so if... Um, if we're talking about building these these two types of businesses, my my opinion is that one is not necessarily better than the other. Mm-hmm. One is not necessarily going to make you richer than the other. Um, and there's a lot of false belief around this. I think a lot of that is spread, unfortunately, from the venture capital tech world, right? So there's this, there's a lot of information out there that's like, oh, you know, an agency business is whatever a nice lifestyle business, or it's not scalable, or it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're never going to get the profit margins of, of software as a service. And then you look at venture-backed SaaS businesses, and their technical gross margin is quite high, but net is often, you know, barely break even. And often, even more often, they lose money for a very long time until they go public or get sold, um, Right. I mean, HubSpot was losing money until what a year and a half, two years after they IPO'd. Right. For mm-hmm. for their entire history, they they lost money, and you know, and uh, until then. So, it, um, it is really, really important to think about what you're passionate about and what you want, and the kind of business that you want to build, 
and not be biased by you know, tech and media sources and, and the venture capital world, I, I would encourage very, very few people to go out and seek uh, venture capital. I think that services businesses can sometimes build great software products um, on the side and offer those and have them be a part of their competitive advantage. And I think that software businesses can offer services and have that be part of their competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are not mutually exclusive things. I think anyone who tells you otherwise is kind of 10 years behind the times, right? There was was like a period from the early 2000s, mid 2000s until like the mid 2010s when for some reason it was popularized that, you know, services bad, software product good, never should they meet. And now now everyone sees that SaaS businesses at scale almost always offer services on top of them and services can help a SaaS business have higher lifetime value and better retention rates and lower churn and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. Yeah. Are you offering any services next to the SaaS businesses at SparkDoor now or is this a plan or is it a... Uh, not no, we're we're not right now, and uh, it is not part of the plan for us. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, we offer um, what would I call it? Uh, when you buy, when you subscribe to a package, you'll get an email, a personal email from me that I just write to everybody, mm-hmm. and I work I work with almost everyone who signs up to like help them use the product and you know, help them with their marketing. A lot of them, I'm helping them like find agencies and consultants, uh, a bunch of agencies and consultants. Uh, I've been helping them, you know, apply the data to their client projects. So yes, you get a very personalized level of service (laughs) from the founders. Um, And that'll probably be true until we have a few hundred customers. Yeah, that's for free for now. Right. Yeah, cool. Well, why is it actually that you chose to run a SaaS business? Because you used to uh, run an agency uh, way back, like more back, than yeah. 17 years ago, I guess. Um, yeah, it's mostly you... because I don't like sales. Ah. Yeah, so I, I just don't, I don't like the, the process of um, sort of selling people directly one-to-one. And then also I don't like the process of, keeping them as customers by continuing to sell them and upsell them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not a, uh, yeah, not an interest of mine. And, and also, right. I, I, I really do, as we, as we talked about earlier, I really do like building software and aggregating data, making that available to folks. And so that's, um, yeah, because that's a passion that made sense as a, as a business model. Yeah. In your book, I also remember you made a financial comparison between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone uh, thinking about uh, making a choice pure, purely for financial reasons, what would you advise? Agency or SaaS business? It's a hard question, I know. Really hard question. Um, I mean, the weird part is uh, a SaaS business, if it's successful and it's at scale and you can find a buyer for it, these are all big ifs, mm-hmm. um, you might be able to, assuming that you own almost all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably will come out better than an agency business with similar, you know, num- growth numbers, similar, um, you know, sort of scale and size. That being said, there are far more, um, it, it is often easier to sell an agency business than it is to sell a SaaS business. It depends. Actually, you know what? That's not true. It really depends on what you're in, right? Some mm-hmm. agencies are very easy to sell because they're in a market that a lot of uh, bigger agencies want to buy in. Yeah. Um, some SaaS businesses are in a particular market and so they're easier. So I, I don't know that there's a balance there. Uh, I would say with, with the two models, um, the degree, the, the likelihood that you will be able to successfully build and scale up a business is much lower on the SaaS side than it is on the agency side. Yeah. Right. Most agencies are able to successfully get off the ground, right? Consultancies, independent consultants, they're able to get off the ground. They're a- they survive longer. 
they tend to uh, ha- be profitable for longer mm-hmm. SaaS products, high failure rates. Most of them don't get off the ground. Many that do get off the ground can't sustainably find customers and fail in their first year or two. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty so very, very hard comparison to make, right? I, if you already have a ton of money and you're trying to like build one or the other, this is why I tell people to go for their passion right? Mm -hmm. Go for what interests you more. You'll probably be better at that anyway. And it's really about what you'll be better at, not about what you'll, um, you know, the the comparison of like, well, I could build a million dollar a year agency or I could build a million dollar a year SaaS. It's not comparable. No, no, no. Got it. I a a bit further on that in a way. Um, I also noticed that um, even though you're selling SaaS with SparkToro, you're also sen- selling these uh, non-subscription packages, I would say, these one-off packages, yeah. which are then against the idea of creating recurring revenue. Um, can you tell us something more about the idea behind that and and how that actually impacts your your business model and results, I would say? Yeah, yeah. So we... Um, we heard from a bunch of our early, uh, like beta customers and people we, we surveyed and interviewed that one of their big frustrations, especially on the agency side was, uh, SaaS products that only offered subscriptions and you couldn't buy one-time use packages. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because a lot of those agencies use a tool specifically for a client project and wish they could pass billing onto their client directly, right? Like, Hey, this is a cost mm-hmm. of us doing this work. A lot of people have to do that with SparkToro. So we said, hey, let's offer one-off packages uh, to support that use case. We're not venture-backed. We don't plan on raising venture. So we don't have to look at our, you know, whatever. We, we don't have to care about the venture metrics. We just have to care about, is our business profitable? Is it doing well? Is it serving customers well? Is mm-hmm. it making people happy? And we, we believe that a lot of people who buy a one-week package, right, will come back in the future and buy another one-week package when they need us again. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we've already seen that. We've seen a couple agencies that have done exactly that, right? They bought yeah. two, two one-week pack- packages over just the last two months. Yeah. And you can m- maybe even charge them more because they ap- charge it to the customer anyway. Or... Right. They're charging, it, they're charging it directly to their customers, right? And so we, you know, we just give a, a high level of use and that um, it's not recurring. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, we, we think about lifetime value just really differently than a classic, you know, venture-backed SaaS business would. So lifetime value for us is over the next five years, how many times will someone subscribe and unsubscribe? How many packages will they buy? How many people will they tell about it mm-hmm. refer, right? So I, it's a much more holistic, big picture, broad yeah. view of lifetime value versus a you know, just a credit card connected to an account and how many months were they paying? Yeah, which is easier to track, but is less complete. Yeah. How are you, how are you thinking about tracking that? Do you have a system in place for that? Or are you also going uh, yeah, crawl we them? A, in the... <laughs> we have a, um, a, a rough system in place. But um, no, I think, to be very frank, uh, a lot of that is just based on on faith, right? Like we're... Mm-hmm we are not worried about having perfect data to be able to prove it because we don't have to prove it to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, know, we know that it is true that those things will, will happen. And so we invest that way. Um, we do have ProfitWell, which is really nice tracking for the Stripe credit card side of mm-hmm. things um, and help, you know, helps us keep, keep track of ARR, MRR, all that. But you do sort of have investors, right? Uh, yeah, we have 36, 35 angel investors. Um, mm-hmm. They, yeah, they own units of distribution in the LLC. And, and basically, uh, we have a very unique model where we, um, you know, if the company sells, they get the greater of either their investment amount back or they get their, uh, you know, their percentage ownership in the company of whatever the sale price is. Uh, and we um, also have a model where, you know, we sort of take our first 1.3, we raised 1.3 million. We take our first 1.3 million in profit and we uh, plan to sort of pay those folks back. And then once we do, everybody participates in profit sharing pro rata, uh, founders included. 
Well, uh, so that's a lot of information to take in. So, so actually, yeah, my, my advice for anyone who's like interested in checking out mm -hmm. the funding model is uh, Google SparkToro funding. And we mm -hmm. actually open sourced our investment documents. Mm -hmm. And a few other startups have used those documents to raise money. And I, I detail in the post kind of how it works. But, you know, the core of it is like you raise some money from private investors. They own units in your LLC. Once you pay them back, everybody participates in profit sharing. And if the yeah. company ever sells, it works just like any other business. Everybody makes the amount of money equal to their ownership percentage. Okay. Uh, so it's a combination of actually being an owner plus getting the, the profit on top of that. Um, so you're actually getting more than you would normally get by getting shares, not maybe in, um, uh, how to say, um, being able to make decisions. Yeah. Uh, but, but it is in, in financially you're giving more things or. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, I think I agree with you, right. It is more, uh, sort of upfront generous to investors, mm -hmm. um, but it's also quite generous to founders, right? Like Casey and I will get to participate in profit sharing, any year that we have profits, we can choose whether we want to reinvest those right. in the business's growth or whether we want to pay it out as dividends. Um, the only downside, really the only downside to this funding model is you don't get the long-term capital gains tax rate uh, on the profits that you make from SparkToro, which, yeah. it, look, I, you know, I, um, I think it's fundamentally unfair and unreasonable that there's these different taxation rates. Like it's mm -hmm. just, it's wrong, right? But rich people lobbied, lobbied the US government to get this special deal so that their special investments would get taxed less than everybody else's. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you see investors like Warren Buffett complaining that he's like, it's, it's ridiculous that I pay less in tax, a lower tax rate than my, you know, my secretary. Mm -hmm. And he's right. Like, it's fundamentally unfair. It's unjust. It's not right. Um, so SparkToro does not give you that advantage, right, that venture capital does. But in, in every other way, I think it's a more, um, not only more generous, but it, it also, the, the, the thing that excites me the most about it is it does not require billion dollar outcomes or death, you know, uh, that bifurcated venture outcome to, to make money, right? Point, what is it? 0 0.6%, 0 0.06%, I think, mm -hmm. of, uh, of 10,000 or 100,000 venture backed companies um, are going to make, uh, are going to be that, those unicorns. Mm -hmm. And most everyone else, right? 90, I think it's 95 or 96% of venture invested uh, firms don't return their minimum capital requirements. So that's not a good time for any of the employees. It's not a good time for the founders. It's not a good time for the customers. It's not a mm -hmm. win for the venture investors. It's a loss for 96% of the companies and a win for 4%. Wow. It sucks, right? Like that model sucks. I don't want to sign up for those odds, right? Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd much rather have a company that has a long-term, sustainable, profitable path to survival and potential growth over the long term and that can pay out profits when it has profits. Um, and if it turns into a big hit, right, which SparkToro could, mm -hmm. it'll still be a huge win for our investors. They just won't get the, whatever, 12% tax break or 13% tax break or whatever. On the, the final sale, they, they don't or? Uh, no, on the profits, they don't. On the profits, yeah. So, but the, the profits it is what makes it interesting for them to not, to go for um, a not a grow at all costs model, but towards a profit profitable company model, right? Exactly, right? Because every every year that SparkToro is profitable and in business, they're making some money, right? So mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, potentially. But what we hope, right, what we very much hope is that the SparkToro model inspires a lot more people to use this system um, and to build companies that have a higher chance of survival and that uh, don't have to be unicorns in order to make their investors happy. Yeah. Uh, how, how does the, the governance exactly look around this model? Like, like who, who makes or influences the decision? 
Do you have a board now based on these uh, angels or? No, nope, nope. Uh, the decisions sit with sit with me. So um, that was that was one of the, you know, I'd had some frustrating experiences from my past, and um, this was one of the one of the things that I basically, you know, told our investors is like, yeah, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to have faith in me. There's a, there's a few covenants um, around like we can't raise another round of funding uh, mm -hmm. unless we get. I can't remember. I, I think it's a majority of our investors. So we'd have to get like 17 of our investors to say like, oh yeah, that, that, that looks fine. Um, gosh, there's a couple other covenants. They can't, they can't go resell their shares without notifying us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty, pretty uh, standard protection stuff. Uh, uh, did you exactly select the investors? Was it uh potential customers and resellers or were the other, was that not a criterion or? Uh, I, we, you know, we didn't have a lot of criteria other than had to be um, accredited investors. Uh, mm -hmm. We did, um, we did get a lot of folks. I think half or more uh, of our investors are in the web marketing field, which is mm -hmm. really nice, right? These are people who can yeah, nice. like help us and help, Amplify SparkToro and yes, who will be customers, right? Um, uh, a number of our investors are owners of agencies and they their agencies are customers. So that's, mm -hmm. that's cool. Um, but yeah, we are, we are um, pretty, you know, passionate, I'd say, about having, um, having this group of people who can help us out and who are not... Um, They're not making decisions, but they are happy to be helpful. And I think that's that's what you want in an angel investor anyway, right? Even if you're venture-backed, yeah. oftentimes your first round of funding comes from angels. And those people are not very involved in the business, but sort of happy to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We have those uh, on board. Uh, that's nice, yeah. Uh, actually, a uh, last question about, about, all, about all this. Um, um, Why did you go for accredited investors? And because the second part of my question is, um, do you think you could do this, um, use this model in a sort of crowdfunding model as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in in um, in all honesty, we considered doing a crowdfunding campaign for SparkToro. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately decided decided against that, but... I think absolutely, right? Uh, probably more possible to do that if the number of dollars that you're trying to raise is smaller, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we were looking to raise, you know, a little over a million. Uh, if you're looking at 100,000 to 250K, I think um, crowdfunding is very, very achievable, assuming that you've got um, some credibility with your community and, and notoriety in the field and you're building something that, you know, that that people know that they're going to want. I think SparkToro was much more experimental. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't even know if the technology would work when we started it. Yeah. So we had to, yeah, we had to take a, a high risk on that front. Yeah, got it. On to another topic then. Uh, I have a, a, a personal and selfish, selfish question for you, uh, but probably generalizable to a lot of the businesses of our listeners. Uh, imagine you have a CRM company uh, that is uh, way more human, easier, more automated blah, 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 than other CRMs, but you're operating in a very crowded market uh, with a series of large players that have tens, hundreds of millions, billions in some cases, uh, resources to act eyeballs. What would you advise as a marketing strategy to Uh, pierce through all this? Uh, I think you have to deeply, deeply specialize, right? You have to be the best CRM for one very particular kind of business. Someone who mm -hmm. needs something that's, that's very different from what everybody else offers. And then you basically um, position yourself that way, build your product features that way, market to those people, uh, be in all those mm -hmm. places, right? So that could be, hey, we serve you know, whatever account, we're the best CRM for accountants. We're the best CRM for, um, small doctor's offices, uh, yeah. you know, fewer than 10 doctors in an office. We're the best CRM 
for web marketing companies or like whatever it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. You have to deeply, deeply specialize. That is, that's what's going to be the win for you. Uh, and why do you think this is the case? I'm interested in some more. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, because, because I think, I don't think that you can, um, when you're small and scrappy, when you don't have millions and billions of dollars uh, to throw against, you know, marketing and branding, to throw against mm-hmm. um, product features and building stuff, you, it is, it's unreasonable to ask you to compete in the broad field, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you, you have to find your way into a space sort of, you know, geographically or uh, uh, feature-wise or um, customer archetype-wise or uh, positioning-wise, right? Mm-hmm. You're, not gonna, you're not just going to be able to come out and compete with Coke and Pepsi by launching whatever, Jerome Cola, you know, like it's, <laughs> um, it's not going to happen. Right. But yeah. could you, could you launch something locally, right. And get it in a few restaurants with like restaurateurs that, you know, and start to get it on a couple of grocery store shelves at even independent grocers that, you know, and like take this positioning of, Oh, well, it's all whatever. It appeals to organic and ecologically conscious folks, or it appeals mm. to whatever sports fans, or it appeals to, energy drink world, whatever, right? Like you, you need, you need a differentiator. And I think in this, in CRM space, uh, the, the best way to play that is to choose a customer target that is unique because then you can be in those unique places and you can serve those people better than a generic one could. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's something we're, we're thinking about. So, well, and working on actually. A so uh, book recommendation for you. If you haven't yet read yeah. April Dunford's I have. Obviously Awesome, I, have. I highly recommend it. We were uh, co-speakers at a conference last year. Oh, yeah. When, when there were still conferences uh, yeah. live, uh, yeah, we could uh, have pasta together and all. Uh, now, when you're co-speakers at a conference, uh, you're both in your home somewhere. And, uh, you know, it's a different kind of thing. Very different. Yeah. Uh, what, is, what is actually your marketing strategy with SparkToro? So how, how, many, how many people did you line up pre-launch and, 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 and how did you go about that? Which channels did you use and how did the funnel look? And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, email was huge for us, right? So we built a very big email list, about 20,000 folks who mm. um, were on that list. And we um, you know, built that up over uh, almost 18 months right prior to launch. Uh, a lot of that came through, you know, content, events and conferences, uh, podcasts, to be totally honest, I did a lot of, a lot of podcasts and discussions, um, did some big content pieces that brought people to the site, uh, talked about it on my public social channels. And then all of that came back to our email list. And that email list is how we did our, our early access launch uh, from February to uh, early April which of course was a terrible, terrible time. Yeah. The economy was just falling off a cliff and marketers are getting fired left and right. Budgets are getting killed. Um, but yeah, so that, uh, that email list for us was um, rel- relatively effective uh, despite the, the pandemic. And then uh, we, we've been relying on that system ever since. So we offer a freemium version of the tool, right? You can run 10 free searches uh, mm-hmm. When you sign up, you know, we, we sort of capture you. You can opt in or opt out to, to having us send you an email. But um, we follow up with folks who sign up with, a, with an email. And um, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's sort of our long-term plan is to continue to nurture people who are continually using and finding value out of the free version of the product, find ways to offer them more value with the paid version and, you know, sort of bring them to the, uh, the higher tiers. Yeah. And if, if you would advise uh, some people who are also looking to launch a product and uh, basically you said we got everyone on an email list and you mentioned some of the, the channels you use, but what were sort of uh, the, the percentages? How, how can you attribute the different channels to your success in building that list? I, I cannot. I really cannot, right? We don't, we don't have no. a way to... Uh, podcast is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I are having this conversation. Maybe a bunch of folks are listening and they're like, huh, the SparkToro thing sounds pretty interesting. Yes. You know, yeah. I, I could give a promotional URL and like try and track people through that. 
I get on stage at a conference, right, or an event, mm-hmm. um, and I give a talk. I I go do a webinar, right, for a, or a training group. I have a you know a, a YouTube live event. Uh, I'm talking about SparkToro on social media. A lot of the time, people are not going to click the link or follow the URL that day, right? It's going to be a long term. Oh, I heard about it a few times, and then I I realize like, oh, shoot, my boss, my team, my client just asked me, hey should we be doing any sponsorship of uh, websites outside of just Google and Facebook ads? Mm-hmm. Oh, what was that? What was that thing Rand Fishkin was working on? He has a tool like that. Let me uh, yeah. search for, oh yeah, Spark Toro. Okay, let me go try that thing. That's how a ton of people come to us. And so attribution is very difficult. It's very imperfect. And mm-hmm. I don't care, right? I am, I am very comfortable with serendipitous marketing uh, resulting in branding and resulting in people coming to the site. I do not need perfect tracking because again, I don't need to prove it to anyone. No, no. But I was, I was asking it from a perspective of being able to advise other people. Sure. And now they're all like, Oh shit, we have no answer. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and this is, this is partially true, but not entirely true. Right? Like I can show you our, um, if you want, can I uh, share my screen here? Uh, you can certainly try. Uh, I, uh, maybe, yeah, try it. I hope nothing crashes. That's I think so. Let's see. It says host disabled participant screen share. Oh, it does, it's, it's fine. There's no problem. I'll what I'll tell you is right. I can jump into mm-hmm. our Google Analytics, and we have set up a free account creation as a goal. Right, a goal yeah. in. GA. And so mm-hmm. what I can see through Google Analytics is last click attribution, right? So, you know, direct sent us, mm-hmm. whatever, 266 um, uh, free account signups uh, in the last week. Organic search sent us 243. Social sent us 76. Referral sent us 49. Email sent us one. Most yeah. of that organic search, in fact, I'm going to guess 80 or 90% of it, are branded searches, people searching for SparkToro mm-hmm. or some variant of SparkToro or you know something like Rand Fishkin startup or audience intelligence, uh, you know, Moz founder, right? Like whatever. Mm-hmm. Stuff that basically says, I want to find that thing I heard Rand talking about uh, at some point. And then uh, the the you know direct is is exactly that, right? Like a lot of yeah. sources that are non-attributable. I can go through these and look, right? I can look at the referral sources. I can see websites that are sending us good traffic. Buffer wrote an article about uh, SparkToro uh, a month mm-hmm. ago that sends us sends us really nice traffic, like you know maybe ten accounts every week. So you know there's stuff in there that I can that I can use, but perfectly attribution I can't get. The one thing I would say is if you are trying to convince someone to make an investment. Uh, Google Trends can be really helpful for this, right? Mm-hmm. So you can go to Google Trends and you can search for a brand name that might have been mentioned. So let, you know, let's say that you had on your podcast last week, um, I don't know, somebody from Unbounce. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could go into Google Trends and search for Unbounce and see, oh, look, when they were, you know, when Jerome was doing his Facebook Live thing last yeah. week, the search volume for Unbounce went up a significant amount. Like he's, he's driving a lot of, we should get on his podcast. How do we get on his podcast? Right. That isn't, isn't it that like, is you can see it by the, by the day or by the hour, by the hour, by the hour, by the hour, which is really, really nice. So, you you know, if you see a television commercial Mm -hmm. um, during a live sports broadcast, which don't exist anymore because of COVID, but Right back when they back when they did, you could see you know um, whatever a football game in the United States and an advertiser running an ad, and you could see the hour when it happened. You could see the spike in their branded search, right? Yeah. And so you could you could intuit how effective was the ad and how effective was the channel. All I'm thinking now is that you could crawl that, like you could you could crawl. Um the well the, the google trends thing uh get all the data points and then um see when uh people were mentioned in places and correlate the things and potentially it's yeah quite some work but yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i mean so so part of that right is saying hey can we you know can we prove it and part of it is i i will 100 admit I, I cheat right i get to use spark toro 
<laughs> like mm-hmm. I use my own software to see like, oh, okay, well, where are web marketers paying attention? What are agencies paying attention? What about market researchers? What about yeah. founders of companies, right? And I look for here's the sources that they pay attention to. Here's the podcast, blah, blah, blah. I plug in a podcast or a, a, a Twitter account, um, uh, a website, and I can see what their followers look like. Oh, do these followers, right? Do these these attributes that these followers have and the audience insights have, does that look like what the audience that I want to reach? Does that look like people who are likely yeah. to be users of our product? It does. Well, let's go do that then, right? So is that uh, how you how you said yes to this podcast? Uh, is it? Uh, I mean, uh, I said yes. I said yes to this podcast uh, even without checking because I really liked your uh, your pitch and your page. But uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, can you can you give us a, an example of uh, a way in which you use SparkDraw for yourself? Uh, would be yeah. cool. To, like, yeah. That's, to, so that's, to inform your marketing strategy. Or yeah, one of the. Um, one of the recent fields that we wanted to break into was that there's this world called market research, right? Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that phrase tends to mean people who survey, um, build large scale surveys, like you were talking, like we were talking about at the, at the start of this, um, episode, uh, and, and, and publish them out and then try and get, you know, hundreds or thousands of responses and analyze those. And market research is a messy, it is a messy, uh, world, as you know, Um, but it's a world that I want to break into. Like I want people in market research world to be aware of what SparkToro does, mm-hmm. to be aware of us. And so um, I, yeah, have basically uh, used SparkToro to look for people who frequently talk about market research, who have market research in their profile and bio, found some influential sources, took those sources and plugged them in as searches and built myself a list, right? Mm-hmm. You, you just check things off in SparkToro and then say, add to list. And I, I started following those people on Twitter. I connected with some of them on LinkedIn, uh, had some conversations, right? One-to-one conversations. And then what do you know? Like, you know, got invited to a couple podcasts, uh, did a YouTube channel thing with someone uh, and ended up one of the connections that I made actually via Twitter, ended up writing, uh, they were writing a blog post about some other stuff and they included some SparkToro data in there and linked to us. Mm-hmm. Awesome, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not even spending any money, right? I'm not doing any advertising. A lot of, most of SparkToro's customers are spending ad money, but we are, uh, we're trying to be very conservative on the ad spending front right yeah. now. And so I'm doing this just organically and mm-hmm. yeah, relatively effective. Uh, about being conservative, uh, I noticed that you took around like two years from funding to launch. Um, Almost, I rem- yeah. I remember in your book, it's like chapter, uh, um, on the second page. Um, what does it say again? Something about um, great products are rarely minimally viable. Yeah. Uh, Is that uh, the strategy that was behind this? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, we we knew that the day we launched, thousands of people would look at SparkToro and for years afterward, that would be the impression that they'd have about us, right? That Mm -hmm. they would... You know, we had that one chance, that, 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 that those first 30 seconds, 90 seconds that they played with the product to make an impression on what they would take away for the next five or even 10 years. Yeah, um, they would say like, ah, useless. Or, exactly. They would say yeah. useless or like, oh, I see what they're doing here. This is really interesting. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, when I need this thing in the future, I will come back to SparkToro. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that the product was very polished and high quality, that it was easy to use, that the data was solid. Um, I don't think we did a perfect job, but I think we, mm. we definitely did a pretty, a much better job than most of my software launches, uh, in the past. You know, I have, I have been very guilty in my previous life at Moz of launching some, some pretty minimally viable MVPs and, uh, and SparkToro was not that. Yeah. No, so not the the ship early uh, philosophy, but more like. Yeah. But then, if you if you don't uh, ship it early, then the question is, how do you still validate your product as early as possible without yeah. having to keep it all to yourself for a long while? Because that's really what the yeah, whole so we had the startup movement is about, right? Yeah. So instead of going public with it, we had a private, right? All those people who were on the email list, we, mm-hmm. you know, we asked them to fill out a survey. We got 
information. And then we invited cohorts of them to be beta testers, mm -hmm. right? So private beta testing and then early access testing behind the scenes rather than public launch. And so right. people who are in those groups knew that they were getting access to an early version of the product that they were helping, uh, you know, facilitate it getting better and better. That is, that is where we did a lot of our, um, you know, uh, refinement and making sure that we weren't just building in a closet. Yeah. So these people had more patience with your product and were not just there like to, yeah, good thinking, absolutely. good thinking. Yeah. And Jerome, I apologize. I've only got a couple more minutes um, and then I need to run, but. Let's uh, start wrapping up then towards um, learnings. I heard you say that you read about uh, 50 articles a day uh, and, and learn from that. Uh, how, how do you exactly go about that? I, I cannot imagine myself reading 50 articles a day, especially next to being on, on podcasts and YouTube lives and all these kind of things. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think that might be an exaggeration on my part. Um, maybe ah, okay. 50 articles, 50 articles a week sounds probable to me. Mm, so more okay. like more like five a day, uh, five to seven a day. And um, yeah, a lot of that is just finding things that um, through my social feeds, through SparkToro has this trending section that I use for a lot of like web marketing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really handy and, and that's free. Uh, so yeah, that, that helps me stay on top of what's going on in the web marketing world. And, and, uh, Hacker News is another big source for me. I read a ton yeah. of that. Uh, I'm a big Reddit user for, for information. So those are my, those are my sources. The socials. Yeah. Yeah. Last question then. Uh, I have your book here, uh, but if you would have to uh, point at the book that shaped you as a person the most or the way you run Spark Doro the most, which book would you recommend to people? Ooh, I mean, we already talked about Obviously Awesome, but um, I also love, uh, yeah, this one. Uh, Liz Fosslein and Molly West Duffy's No Hard Feelings. No Hard Feelings, okay. No Hard Feelings. Excellent, excellent book. Probably the best book on management and working with people that I've ever read. Um, what yeah, is exactly the gist of the book? Uh, it's, it's about embracing emotions at work, right? Building a, building a better uh, working relationship with the people around you, um, being willing to have hard conversations. It's, it's yeah, uh, it's about that emotional sort of soft skills of business. And, and I think that that's underinvested in by a lot of folks in our field. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Great to have you on Founder Coffee and to uh, go live together for this Facebook group. It was great. Awesome. All right. Take care of yourself, man. Have a good day. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.